0: In case you have not been listening to the Medical Nemesis Podcast, this is probably going to be the last week, by the time this episode airs, for our giveaway for Read This Before Medical School. So if you haven't done so yet, please go to our giveaway page at book.freemeded.org giveaway. That's book.freemeded.org giveaway.
1: Welcome to the One
0: Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and
1: excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here is your host and med-ed entrepreneur, Chase DiMarco.
0: Today, we're joined by Dr. Ted O'Connell, who is a family physician and med-ed entrepreneur. He is the founding residency program and fellowship director at Kaiser Permanente in California, has has authored over a dozen textbooks, including Crush Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 Secrets, and is the co-founder of the Exam Circle QBank platform is also on the board of directors for Inside the Boards, and has co-authored a book with myself and Greg Rodden titled Read This Before Medical School, How to Study Smarter and Live Better While Excelling in Class and on Your USMLE and COMLEX Board Exams. Ted, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Chase. Thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Thank you for joining me. This is great. I know we uh, have discussed many things over the past year with Inside the Boards and with the book and everything else, but this is the first time we've actually done a podcast together. So great to expand our horizons a little. Absolutely. I like to start this with a little icebreaker question, and that is, what is the funniest or the scariest thing that you've ever seen in a hospital setting?
1: Ooh, that's a good question, Chase. And you kind of prepped me with this, and I was thinking it through. And I, I think to some extent, we get a little bit uh, kind of numb to both scary and funny things over time. But in thinking about the question, one time I went down to the emergency department to see a what I thought was a regular patient, and behind the curtain was actually two people in clown costumes. And it—I it, don't know how necessarily funny that is, but it was rather surreal to see that you know kind of people out of context or where you expect to see them, and definitely took me by surprise. And had a good laugh about it with them. So I'll, I'll give you that one as maybe most surreal.
0: <laughs> that could be the scariest one too. It so could be.
1: They were happy clowns. So it was... Okay,
0: not too bad. All right. A little bit more about you. I know I mentioned 20 things in the intro, but I know you have a lot more than that too. Can you just describe a little bit about you know your past and your profession and, and where you see yourself in the educational aspect of medical education right now?
1: Sure. I, I think that question does actually have a number of answers for me in terms of what my role is in medical education. So as you said in the intro, I am a residency program director and started the first family medicine residency and then community medicine fellowship for Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And so I have that role both administratively and educationally teaching medical students and residents. I work on the inpatient medicine service and have an outpatient clinic of my own where I host medical students and then precept the residents in the office. So a lot of kind of different teaching roles there. I also am the author of a number of books, as you had mentioned. And so that's kind of my way to kind of educate outside of my walls to where I work and be actively engaged there. Uh, I've been involved with Exam Circle, as you said, that's a free online crowdsourced question bank. The intent is to really help cut the costs of medical education and someday hopefully create both the best and free online question bank. Uh, I've been working with you and the rest of the team at Inside the Boards, working on some audio products and an audio cue bank and podcasting just trying to extend the reach a little bit and and help people study on the go so that they can help with their wellness and gain some of their hours back in their lives. Uh, and so I, I really just, medical education is something that kind of fuels me. And so all of these things I, I view as kind of as hobbies. They're, they're fun for me to do and, and to engage in.
0: Awesome. And yeah, we'll do a quick little shout out for Inside the Boards. I know you have the Step 2 Secrets podcast also within the Inside the Boards network, as well as my show, The Medical Neminist podcast, and the Audio AudioQ Bank, which is the only current audio form of board exam questions to study on the go. So that is also on iOS and soon to be Android. So good little shout out. Absolutely. And then we've had a few interviews in the past with different varieties of family physicians, and mostly in private practice, and then in uh, direct primary care, which is a little niche in private practice family care. But you're the first one that has been in family practice within like the hospital setting. So. I'd like to know more about how those differ and what types of students you take there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, it's a little bit tough for me to kind of compare and contrast how those differ because, you know, direct primary care can be quite different than being in a, you know, a smaller solo or group practice and private practice. But I can kind of tell you what my practice looks like. I'm part of Kaiser Permanente, which is a, a very large integrated healthcare system. I'm in Northern California. I have a, so I'm part of a a large group practice and provide fairly full spectrum care. I don't do obstetrics these days, but I do, as I said, inpatient and outpatient. And so I I take students from a number of different medical schools. We have agreements with uh, UC San Francisco, Toro University, Drexel University, and uh, UC Davis. So we get third year medical student clerks in working with us for outpatient third-year family medicine rotations. And then we get students from around the country doing acting internships or sub-I's, whatever you like to call those, with us. And we have five different tracks that they can rotate through, but it's essentially a blend of inpatient and outpatient, and then usually focused on different areas depending on what the students want to do, whether it's women's health or community medicine or acute care or a number of other tracks along those lines. So students can be from wherever that we go through. We use VSAS as our clearinghouse.
0: Okay. And then if you have Toro there, that's mostly PA students
1: then? No, it's actually uh, Toro University in Vallejo is one of their four medical school campuses. So it's an osteopathic school. They do have a PA school and I think a pharmacy school, and a number of other allied health sciences. Uh, But it's the osteopathic medical students who work with us.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah. I always think of Toro and PA, so I forget that they do have some osteopathic programs as well. So in your opinion, uh, especially within the hospital setting, family medicine hospitalist, what are some qualities that you think make a good preceptor or a bad preceptor in educating their students?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I think... Somebody who is a great preceptor kind of at the base core of it is somebody who loves to teach and loves to be part of professional development and wants to pass on experience and knowledge to the next generation of students. You know, I I think it definitely helps to have done some faculty development and have learned some of the micro skills around one-minute precepting and giving effective feedback and kind of all those core Uh, faculty development topics that you would have so that you really can work effectively with learners, whether they're medical students or residents. I think it's very helpful to kind of have some, especially on an inpatient service, have some talks kind of in your back pocket where you can break out a three to five minute talk on a variety of topics when you have some downtime. I think you have to be comfortable with a little bit of uh, giving up control to, if you really want to allow learners to develop, you know, giving them the the leeway to kind of make their own decisions. I think patience is is a great virtue in medical education. So kind of all of those things. There's probably more that aren't coming to mind right away. And somebody who's a less to answer the other part of your question, somebody who is a less effective preceptor, you know, is kind of the opposite of all of those people. Somebody who's not really passionate about medical education. Somebody who really needs to retain a lot of control over what they do may not be maximally beneficial to students. Somebody who's in it for perhaps not the right reason, you know, whether it's because they have to or, you know, their university requires it or whatever the situation may be, that person may not be the ideal preceptor. So, those just kind of broad strokes are some of the things I think about.
0: And that's a good point because a lot of the past interviews have been more private practice setting where the preceptors are doing it because they want to. Whereas in the university and academic uh, hospital setting, sometimes it's kind of forced on them and the preceptor might not want to do that or have the time to do it or be necessarily interested, qualified, passionate about teaching. So I I guess that's a, a huge difference when you're talking about the different preceptor levels and educational environments
1: yeah, and even within that chase, I, I would tease out and say, even just because somebody wants to do it doesn't necessarily make them an effective preceptor or a great preceptor. good point. You know, some of it is natural skill at supervision and teaching. Uh, a lot of it can be learned as well. So somebody's really interested but hasn't taken the time they you know, they may have a gap in in terms of how effective they can be. There are a lot of really great faculty development programs around, or, or even books that you can look at just to learn skills so you have tools in your tool belt to uh, to really help the students in, in terms of their development.
0: That's a good point. Very good point. I'm glad that you mentioned the one-minute preceptor model since a lot of preceptors seem to intuitively teach this way without really having an idea of the model or of some sort of format to follow. And not that it's necessary to follow it, but it's easier to break down for students, especially new to clinical practice. So maybe we can go over the one-minute preceptor model from your experience.
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to talk about one-minute precepting. And I will say that I think it's Kind of even the best use for it is in an outpatient environment where, or an emergency department where you're under some time pressures to keep moving. You know, on an inpatient service, sometimes you do have that downtime where you can listen to a prolonged presentation or spend time really talking about a differential diagnosis. But on an outpatient service or an outpatient rotation, it, it's just super useful. I'm sure you've gone over this in other podcasts, but the idea with the one minute preceptor is to get a commitment, probe the learner for supporting evidence to support their commitment, reinforce what was done well, give some guidance about where they could have done better, and then teaching a general principle. What I actually like to do with my learners is the first time I work with them, we just sit down and talk about expectations and I talk with them about how much of a history I would like them to obtain. You know, somebody who comes in with an acute wrist injury, I probably don't need to know their social history and their family history. You can focus on the on the issue in point. Somebody comes in with chest pain, I'm going to want to know more about their review of systems and their family history and things like that. And then what I ask them to do is, is try to figure out how much history they need to take and that we'll learn together, and I'll give them feedback. But what I ask them to do is, when they get to the assessment and plan, is to really commit, just like the the one minute preceptor says. But I ask them think about it as if you were on a desert island without a preceptor, and you had to commit to your thought process. And I tell them, I'd like to hear that out loud. In terms of what is their differential diagnosis, please give that to me an order of likelihood of what you think is going on. Give me the rationale for why you're putting things in that order and why you think things may or may not be in play. And then I also ask them for commitment around a plan, even if they're not quite sure what to do or they have some doubt or they're a little bit shy about wanting to commit. I just ask them to commit. Because really that allows me to understand their thought process and then kind of teach within that and, and find where the gaps are. And it, it really by doing that up front. I think it allows the other pieces of the one-minute precepting principle to kind of really shine through because they're already primed to give a commitment. It allows me to, kind after they've given me their thought around the differential, I I can then probe based on that. And then a lot of the rest of it is kind of giving them feedback about what they did well, what they could improve upon, and then some core nugget. Um, That's kind of one of the things I do frequently whether it's inpatient or outpatient is is really just try to weave in teaching points to each patient presentation so that there's just kind of this constant learning process going on
0: great yeah I know that um, a few preceptors that I've talked to in the past have kind of made the comment that students don't always make the patient their own. They don't think about it as their patient. They think about it as their preceptor's patient. So really, I like what you said there with uh, you're on an island by yourself without a preceptor. You really have to own the patient and the patient care. And that'll, I guess, potentially make you think more clearly, more fully. Uh, You are responsible for that patient. So I like that part.
1: Yes. And I actually, what we do in our group, and, and I've written a blog article about it, about how to really succeed on an outpatient rotation. And part of what we ask our students to do is before any given clinic session is to get on the electronic medical record, look at your preceptor's schedule for that half day, You know, come in early in the morning, look at the schedule, go through the patients, know the details about their background, and even down to the level of, are they due for any vaccines? And any healthcare maintenance things and take notes on all of that so that when you come in to your preceptor, you're very well prepared. There's already, I think, the beginnings of some ownership around that patient when you've done the pre work and you're not just kind of walking in with your preceptor or being sent in. You actually have some background about them. And I think it helps reinforce that feeling of ownership.
0: Definitely. Actually, that really segues great into some of the expectations for students. I know you said that talking about the expectations initially is really good. And then prepping each morning for the rotation. Are there any particular ways that you would recommend a student prepare before they start a rotation with you or in family practice in general?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I I think much of what I will say uh, could be extrapolated to just about any rotation, definitely outpatient rotations and probably many inpatient rotations. We want success on multiple levels, right? As a student, you want to impress your preceptors because you may you know, a grade may depend upon it, an evaluation may depend upon it. You may be looking for a letter of recommendation down the line. So you want to impress on those fronts. I think from that patient ownership standpoint, you just want to perform well on the rotation because you are providing care to patients. And I think we should all be shooting to provide the best care we possibly can. And so some of what I'm about to say is kind of built around success in all of those areas. One thing, whenever possible, I suggest that students do is to reach out to the rotation about a week or so in advance of the rotation. And you can either contact the the rotation coordinator if there is one or the attending, and really just to try to get some expectations from them about not just what hours will be, but what your role will be, whether they would like you to look through patient care ahead of time. And I would suggest even offering to do that, to be proactive, trying to find out which attendings or residents Uh, a student might be working with because then you can get online sometimes and learn a little bit about them. So you have some background, know where their strengths and interests are and have that ability to make a connection. You know, if somebody's in a particular niche within whatever their practice is or have a real practice interest, it gives you a chance to kind of study up on that niche a little bit so that you have something to relate to. Or, you know, if they have a particular patient population, uh, it gives you a chance to Learn a little bit more in that realm so that you just come to the rotation a little bit more ready. And then I think next, you know the next step is to get to the clinic early and do your research on the patients, just as I had outlined earlier, um, so that you really show up prepared, engaged, knowing what's going on with these patients. And if you're in that role, you ha- you really do have the ability to potentially save your preceptor a little bit of time or effort or the ability to add to the quality of patient care. You know, if you notice that a patient's due for a pneumonia vaccine, and you bring that up to your preceptor, you know, that's better patient, you know, your preceptor may not have noticed that, and you did, it's a feather in your cap, it's better patient care, or better quality care for the patient.
0: And I suppose those are the same types of things you would look for if a student wanted to ask you for a letter of recommendation, for instance.
1: Oh, absolutely. And those are the kind of things that really end up going into a letter of recommendation, right? It gives the preceptor the opportunity to talk about how well prepared the student was, how the student came and knew the details of the patients that were going to be seen that day. It gives the the preceptor potentially a little bit more time to engage both with the student and the resident if, if you know if things are being done really well. And so the preceptor may have a little bit more opportunity to see what the student's bedside manner is it even provides the letter writer for a letter of recommendation the opportunity to tell anecdotes you know that about how the student added to the quality of care or noticed these healthcare maintenance things like vaccines that needed to be done even when the preceptor didn't notice it you know those are the kind of things that a residency director or a faculty interviewer is going to notice in a in a letter of recommendation these things where somebody appears to be committed engaged, caring about the patient care, coming to the rotation well prepared, you know, and really just easing the improving the flow and the of of what's happening in the office. So those are the things that that residency programs want. And those are the things that students really should want to show up in their letters.
0: That actually brings up a good side point here. I've had a lot of physicians say that even if a preceptor thinks that they're writing a good letter of recommendation or means to that they aren't always doing so since you've been all over including a residency director a fellowship director, do you have any points of wisdom there for students to look for or for preceptors to follow when they're writing a letter of recommendation?
1: Oh absolutely um, Chase in fact on my website I have a blog about how to get a great letter of recommendation and considering your letter writers really, Is important. There's there's actually a lot of things that you can do to increase the odds that you're going to get really great letters. But one is you want to consider the specialty to which you're applying, right? If if you're going, if you want to go into head and neck surgery, probably most of your letters, all of your letters, should come from head and neck surgeons. If you're going into a primary care field, you know you want some from that that primary care specialty, but they don't necessarily all need to be from that specialty. You, you, a student really should consider how well that attending knows you, right? If you worked with the attending for one half day and it went really great, I think it's important to consider it may be better to get a letter from somebody who's worked with you multiple times over a longer duration because they're probably just going to have one better memory of you, more things that they can say about your performance. You'll, by then, you'll have developed a relationship. I think it's vitally important to consider how experienced somebody is as a letter writer, because you may have hit it off with them. You may have knocked it out of the park in terms of how you did on the rotation. And I've seen it plenty of times where you can tell the letter writer is saying positive things, but are probably not that experienced. And and it makes the letter just look kind of mediocre. And instead you know i really think you should you should be targeting people who are probably experienced letter writers it just comes across more polished they tend to know not always but for the most part they kind of know what to say they know somebody who's more experienced knows what a an interviewer or a program director or a selection committee is looking for they they put in the right kind of keywords they tell the right anecdotes and they have all the kind of essential parts of a letter that you would want so yeah, there, there are a lot of things that you can do to skew things in your favor.
0: That's a lot of very useful information. I know a lot of students, especially from smaller schools or foreign schools, are really worried about that constantly because they might not have preceptors that have a lot of experience in writing letters of recommendation so, or that many opportunities to get that many in their specific field that they're applying for. So there's a lot, of, a lot of factors in play. So glad to hear it straight from a residency program director.
1: Yes. And, you know, I I certainly understand situations vary, but still by kind of like understanding what's at play and understanding what a selection committee and a program director is going to look for, you you can at least plot a strategy about how you're going to approach getting letters of recommendation. And that includes things like planning ahead. And if you're going to ask somebody for a letter of recommendation, ask them if you can schedule 20 minutes to sit down and actually talk so that you're not catching them off guard or when they don't have time to talk with you. But tell them, could could we schedule 20 minutes, 15 minutes to sit down and talk about a letter of recommendation? And that way, just by talking it through, you can tell them what type of residency you want to go to and how you see yourself in the future. And, And at the same time, ask do you think you can write me a great letter of recommendation or a strong letter of recommendation you can assess whether that person is going to write you a really strong letter of recommendation you know it gives an honest letter writer a chance to even perhaps you think you did well and that letter writer potential letter writer thinks you didn't some people will actually tell you you know i'm not sure i'm going to i can write you the the best letter of recommendation and it gives you that chance to at least try to assess that and, and give that person the chance to tell you how they think that you did. And even within that, you can ask, try try to assess how, how many letters they've written and just, again, try to kind of skew things in your favor.
0: Great. That is a lot of very valuable information. As we get towards the end here, i like to finish it off with a personal question. So if you would like to pick one of these or both, up to you. What is... One thing that, if you could do differently in your education or career, that you would change? Or what is one dream in medicine that you would like to see happen in your lifetime?
1: I'm going to go with the dream question here, Chase. I would love to see kind of the process of acquisition of medical knowledge be standardized a little bit more or a lot more across medical schools you know we still have to learn procedures we still have to learn how to be doctors we still have to learn how to develop relationships with patients and interview there's a lot of core knowledge that where there's a lot of variability from school to school in terms of what you're being taught what your experience is how good the teachers are in each discipline and i think there's some real opportunity to figure out a way to standardize that and i part of my motivation or within that dream is I think if you could standardize it, you potentially can bring down the costs of medical education and and kind of provide a platform where students can engage in that. And again, that's not for all of medical school. It's kind of for the core knowledge that we all need to develop. So at some point, I would love to see that happen or be engaged in it. And I think that's part of what's intrigued me about Exam Circle and Inside the Boards and some of the other things that I've worked on is... It's Those are kind of stepping stones to the broader goal.
0: I love it and couldn't agree more, especially as things specialize even more and more in the future, they're going to need their own special education for that aspect. But for the basic parts, for the core parts, if we just had a common maybe online campus or something along those lines, I think that could go a long way to standardizing the core aspects of it. 100%. So we have how to succeed in an outpatient rotation and how to get a great letter of recommendation, which I will add in the show notes. Are there any other recommendations that you have for students?
1: Oh, there, um, yes, I have a lot. I, I guess I, I want to keep my answer tailored to what your students would find most valuable. So medicine, is kind, there's really kind of a, a culture within a culture and a way to approach things. And, and there's a lot that happens behind the curtains. You know, medical students don't necessarily know what's happening, how selection committees are making their decisions, and how they look at these letters of recommendation, and what you can do to impress during the interview day, and how you can maximally set yourself up for success after your interview day. So I've started writing about those topics just. It developed out of a a talk that I give at one of the local medical schools. And after a couple of years, I noticed that the same questions kept coming up. And so I've been trying to put those thoughts into written and sometimes video form and just get them out there with the idea of just kind of easing that transition from medical school to residency, reducing the anxiety levels that happen, and really setting, trying to set everybody up for success as much as I possibly can. So those a lot of those topics are on my blog.
0: Well, perfect. We'll definitely put the blog notes in here. Are there any particular resources you would think would be good for maybe a family medicine rotation preparing ahead of time, certain Qbank or a book that's very common?
1: You know, family medicine is such a broad field that it's actually a challenge to figure out how to study for that particular rotation. Different schools use different books. I think one of the best approaches is to just go and take notes on every patient that you see in a in a half day or in a day and try to learn something from each of them. And whether you go to UpToDate or you use American Family Physician or some other kind of core reference to, to read on those topics, I, I think that kind of learning tends to stick really, really well. And it also, if you're reading on the patient's that you see if you're working with the same preceptor and over over and over again, one of the things I tell students to do is make sure you follow up clinically and academically on the patients that you're seeing. So if lab tests or imaging studies get ordered on somebody, make a note of that patient and follow that patient up in a day or two or whenever you expect those results in, and just have a running list so that you can go back to your preceptor and just say, "Oh, I saw that the CT on Mrs. Jones." is normal and it gives you a chance. It shows that you're engaged, shows that you care about the patient. It will help your learning because now you know that that CT, you know the result of it. So it kind of will fine-tune your clinical decision making. And it gives you a chance to re-engage with your preceptor and talk about what else might be going on or what the next steps in management are. So that's following up clinically. And if you've also read about what's going on with the patient, it gives you a chance to go back to the attending and or the resident and kind of talk about what you've learned or what perhaps even something that you didn't think of or the attending didn't think of when you were originally discussing and say, you know, I was reading up on this topic and what do you think about maybe treating the patient with this medication instead? You know, it opens up lines of communication. It shows that you care. It shows that you're engaged in the process. Those kind of things will show up in, in letters of recommendation. And again, at the end of the day, you are potentially helping to improve patient care by bringing Learning and your thought process back to your supervisor.
0: love it. and the follow-up, especially with primary care. that's more so possibly than some other specialties is very important. and uh, I don't think it gets enough attention sometimes. So I'm glad that you brought that one up. Do you have any thoughts for someone interested in becoming a preceptor in your specialty? First,
1: do it. you know it's been for me just a great experience. I love doing it. you know if if anybody's even thinking about it, I'd say, go for it and test it out, see how it goes. There's plenty of opportunity to learn along the way and get better at it. Uh, Enthusiasm goes a long, long way. There was actually a study done at UC San Francisco a number of years ago about engaging with medical students. And what they found is simply by making the statement, I'm glad you're here today, I really love to teach, The preceptors' evaluations or their scores from the medical students went up dramatically. And and I think it's just a sign that enthusiasm and willingness to be part of the process and wanting to do it goes a long, long way. And you don't, you know, I think a lot, many preceptors might hesitate. And I've heard people say, oh, I don't know that I have the experience, or I'm not sure I know how to teach this, or all kinds of uncertainties can come in. And, you know, it's kind of part of this imposter syndrome that so many of us experience at some point in our medical lives. But chance to help develop the next generation of physicians is just a, such a great experience that, that even if you have any hesitancy, I would say, get in and just try it.
0: That's great. I would love to link that study here too. And I wonder if just by stating that, it's like an affirmation. Maybe it becomes more of a self-fulfilling prophecy and you become a better preceptor by making a statement such as that.
1: <laughs> I, I'm sure there's multiple layers to, to what's going on with something like that.
0: Well, Dr. Ted O'Connell... This has been very informative. We've covered a lot of new material here that we weren't able to cover in past episodes too. So I know there's a lot of great value here. I want to thank you again for coming on the show and uh, sharing your expertise with us.
1: It's been my pleasure, Chase. Thank you for having me. I I hope some of this content helps students along the way. And uh, if I can ever help in any other way, just please let me know.
0: Awesome. Will do.